Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Last week, the Chinese government under President Xi Jinping took steps to finally move away from its zero COVID policy following two weeks of protests in multiple cities. The unrest and anti-government sentiment was perhaps the most pronounced since the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. And while these events gave Western observers an opportunity to grapple with the complexity of Chinese politics, it also gave us a chance to see how the Chinese censorship and surveillance apparatus operates. This week's Tech Policy Press podcast comes in two parts. In both, we'll hear from reporters covering the intersection of China and technology. This is the second part, and it features a conversation with two individuals covering China for the New York Times, Paul Mosier and Mui Zhao. In their collaborative coverage, they have mixed open-source visual investigations methods with traditional reporting to get a sense of the protests and the state's response. Here's Paul and Mui. I'm Mui Xiao. I'm a reporter and a video producer uh, on the visual investigations team at the New York Times. Hi, I'm Paul Mosier. I'm a uh, Asia technology correspondent with the New York Times. So I got in touch with the two of you because you share a byline on a story, Breach of the Big Silence, Protests Stretch China's Censorship to Its Limits, um, which gets into the degree to which videos of protests, chants, confrontations with Chinese police are still visible on social media in China uh, days after these protests occurred. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think first, I'd love to ask you, how is the New York Times covering China these days? I know it's become very, very difficult uh, for Western news organizations to do business in China. What is the process and where are people? So I was uh, stationed in China on uh, two different uh, assignments, um, but we were expelled from the country, uh, most of us, about two and a half years ago, a couple months into the COVID outbreak. And so since then, most of our reporters on the ground uh, have had to leave and have decamped to various places in the region, including Australia. Taiwan and Korea. Uh, I'm, I'm based in Seoul. And, you know, it, it definitely makes everything quite a bit tougher. We still have two people who are reporters there and then more Chinese staff as well um, on the ground. But uh, you just can't check things the way you normally would. You can't go to the scene. You know, protests like these happen and you just may not have somebody in Shanghai to go, which in the old days is completely unthinkable. But I think both Mui and myself have sort of followed uh, the data in a way and and decided to kind of see what we can look at. And in some ways, it's actually, I think, offered us a new window into China that in some ways can be you know more representative and less anecdotal. So we've chased after things like large amounts of, of data of procurement documents that show how the surveillance system is being purchased by Chinese police or uh, you know databases that show how the surveillance system itself operates or or you know uh, just a lot of videos, you know hundreds of videos of the protests to try and understand where they started and what happened within them, uh, you know on and on. So this has kind of been the way we've we've tried to uh, tried to evolve, I guess, uh, with the times. But you know obviously it's it's difficult. 
I had a little bit、uh, different experience than Paul because I only joined Times from the U.S., so I was already, you know,、uh, from the time that I joined the Times, I was already covering China remote. But I'm from China, and I actually started my career as a journalist in China for about like five years or so. And you know, I worked for international outlets and also Chinese outlets to the point that the base for Chinese citizens to cover China. Uh, inside the country has become very small and difficult to operate, and I left China to join U.S. outlet in the New York City in 2017,、uh, and it's it was around 2018, and I started to notice this new emerging field in journalism called open source research,、uh, which you know a lot of times it was people kind of covering war using techniques like that. When you are approaching a region that is very hard to have ground access. People use this kind of open source research techniques to gather kind of like digital, a lot of times visual evidence、uh, online, and then examine it. And then I got very interested in these techniques because I thought, you know, with the declining access to China,、uh, this methodology could become very handy. So I actually, you know, learned about it and found my way into the visual investigations team in New York Times, which we kind of like specialize in this kind of. Investigation techniques, like Paul said, we kind of rely on this kind of everything that is publicly accessible on the open internet to cover China most of the time these days. And maybe that's a good place to pivot to this piece, this article. Talk a little bit about the specific material that you were able to collect about the protests and what was happening there、uh, over the last couple of weeks. Can you talk a little bit about that process? How did you go about acquiring and verifying the material that you're looking at? When I cover these protests specifically,、uh, especially in the initial stage, everything's moving very fast. You know, everyone have their own kind of like aspect and beat to cover. My job、uh, mainly was to look at all these videos that emerge online, and I think one thing we we realized, Paul and I realized, is that you know, kind of two two days or almost like after a day of the protest, we realized that. The amount of the videos we were able to see,、uh, especially on Twitter and also on Chinese media, is kind of like more than we thought we would see. So that gave us this question:、uh, first, if what we see is what actually happening, like are there actually more、uh, videos get around censorship this time? And if that is the case,、uh, why is that happening? One is like we notice that、uh, we notice this phenomenon. And then, of course, we need to go to talk to experts to kind of like get our observation validated,、uh, and then it will come to the video, the specific video verification. I mean, for this piece, it actually didn't、uh, involve too much video verification because when we work on this piece, by the time we work on this piece, we already verified a lot of videos、uh, in the like in the two days prior to that. I want to talk a little bit about you know what you observed essentially the kind of volume you mentioned of course that there was a lot of video that was coming across the transom in the last couple of weeks. What were you seeing that sort of seemed to be out of the norm in terms of what is normally possible on the on the Chinese internet or on social media in China? Yeah, so just to go back a little bit, one one piece of context that's important here is、um, the Chinese censorship system very rarely is overwhelmed, but every so often, you know, water sloshes over the top. 
And we've seen it a few times, and especially over the past year with increasing frequency, um, often around sort of similar incidents uh, to this uh, fire in Western China that, that killed at least 10 people, where you um, you just have a lot of anger at the zero COVID policies, and it kind of spills over in different ways. You know, there was a bus crash that killed a, a, you know more than 20 people uh, being transported to a quarantine center. You know, there there were a few different incidents that were similar. And so each time you saw a bit of strain, you'd see some, you know, some kind of anti-government memes going around and they they quickly get censored. They disappear pretty fast. You know, you have to be quick. And one of the things that, you know, Mui maybe didn't mention that's really interesting is when reporting in China, you always screen save or download everything you see on the Internet because it may not be there 10 minutes later. Um, So that's, you know, the collection of this stuff in a way becomes second nature as you cover it. But but in this case, you saw videos of protests. You saw videos of protests in major Chinese cities, uh, people holding up blank pieces of paper, people, you know, having vigils for the people who died with candles out in the streets and not just in Shanghai in in Beijing, in, in Chongqing, in, 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 you know, in Guangzhou, across China. And you see different universities doing it. You see statements coming out from students in different universities about this. And then you start seeing extremely political language that goes beyond zero COVID and starts to go after, you know, the leader Xi Jinping himself saying, you know, Xi Jinping stepped down, um, you know, and enough of this. Videos of protests, just a couple of them, you know, in one place are pretty remarkable. Uh, coordinated uh, protests across the country with videos coming in from all over is is absolutely, you know, shocking that it's still up is even more so. And then that then things in some places turn even more political and really get at the heart of, of the, you know, Chinese Communist Party's claim to power is just absolutely gobsmacking. So I think we were pretty knocked off the sort of, you know, knocked out of our chair by all of this. And yeah, for those videos then to be up for as long as they were, and they're up for days and days, even when the censorship system had grown in the past, we had seen nothing like this. I want to talk a little bit about the creativity of internet users in China to evade those censors. Um, you include a little bit of detail about some of the tactics that people are using, uh, some of which are quite simple. Because the censor has been existing so long in China, people in China have kind of like started to adopt um, and evolve their techniques to invade the censors. In the past, we've seen, uh, you know, when, when the material that they want to share is less about video, maybe it's an article, you know, you see that maybe the initial article got censored, but then like people started to screenshot and then, you know, maybe like turn the image around and then, and then share. Or people start to use like emoji uh, to represent like the content of the video and share. So people try to evade the censorship is is not something new. And people always do that when there are some content that people are very eager to share. And this time, you know, we see some some of the techniques uh, when it comes to video that people do used to do in the past as well, which is, you know, adding filters and also show videos on one phone and use another phone to record the screen. You know, all that kind of like add challenge to the censorship apparatus to operate. But I think another thing that is very uh, important for this time for the censor to get tripped up is that there's just the sheer amounts of protest footage. You know, when this action of people got carried onto streets and there are so many people at the scene everywhere, you know, in many cities and everyone, like a lot of people are like filming the scene from different angles. The, the sheer amount of this kind of footage, I think is a very key uh, reason why the censors got overwhelmed this time. And then you also have, you know, people 
uh, Chinese people that is not in China who are who can access platforms like Twitter uh, without much obstacle, they would kind of like get re- uh, receive submissions of this kind of videos. People would send these videos uh, maybe after they got deleted on Chinese internet or before they got deleted, and then the some Twitter accounts would get these videos and publish on Twitter, and it will stay forever there if the poster doesn't delete it. And then people can maybe if they want they can like download the video and repost it on Chinese internet. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your conversations with a former censor. Uh, you quote a former censor that you spoke with in the piece. Uh, someone who spoke on, of course, condition of anonymity because of fear of government reprisals, you write. But I found it uh, fascinating that you had comment from from someone who worked in that apparatus and who had ideas about the nature of the uh, failure, essentially, of the system and what type of scale of investment would be required, essentially, to clamp down. It's a good type of source to have, but it's also not as rare as it may seem because there are just hundreds of thousands of people who, you know, who are working in the censorship apparatus. Um, and so they, they are around and, and, you know, and a lot of them, you know, get quite angry about it over time too. you know, not the majority, but some certainly get burned out and upset at what they're doing. It's a very hard thing to do, I think, on a human level. What the source told us was that video in particular is very difficult for the automatic screening that they use to deal with just the massive amount of stuff that gets posted online, right? They basically train AIs to look for different things. And AIs, the, the AIs that they train are good at kind of two different things. They're good at finding videos with specific objects in them. Um, so they'll train videos to look for candles or tanks, you know, which are sort of used every year in the Tiananmen kind of remembrance uh, memes. And then they're very good at finding very specific videos. So if there's one video that goes viral, the algorithm can identify that very quickly and, and kind of flag it to humans who can then delete it. But when you have hundreds and hundreds of different videos coming from all corners of China, showing you know protests from different angles, from different people, And then you add to it the level of kind of uh, circumvention that's already being done where people are putting Happy New Year filters on them or, you know, embedding the video within a separate video. You know, so you have SpongeBob SquarePants and then on the computer in SpongeBob SquarePants is the video of the protest. Then it gets a lot harder. And so, you know, the source estimated you probably need 10 times as many people just to deal with the amount of videos being flagged because of that flow. And then also the other thing you would really have to do is build new algorithms specific to these protests. You know, and to do that, you have to basically train the algorithm by loading tons of different, you know, video footage of these protests uh, and then having it kind of identify things that way. Um, and that that t- costs a lot of money and also takes time. And so, you know, you can't really do that within two days or three days. So, yeah, so things were just, you know, overwhelmed, the kind of regular tricks that have worked so well for so long. If you have this level of societal anger and this level of kind of, you know, outbursts, even the world's most sophisticated censorship system at some point starts to break down or kind of reach its logical limit. I want to ask a little bit about the teacher Lee phenomenon, just uh, extraordinary growth in that Twitter account and, and quite a story that's been told in multiple media outlets. But of course, you address it here. I think we noticed that this account is playing a major role in spread of this uh, protest content and video in the initial kind of one or two days. Like just among reporters, when we are flagging each other, uh, what to kind of pay attention to uh, during the protest, we, we share videos we saw on Twitter. And then gradually you realize that when everyone shared the video from Twitter, and a lot of times this is from the handle uh, of this person, uh, Teacher Lee. We reach out to him and kind of like get a sense of what his background is. 
you know, like he is not alone doing this. It's just like uh, during this protest, he definitely become one of the biggest kind of video repositories online. But uh, people doing similar things and people who do similar things for longer time are out there. And we talk to them as well. And it's not only on Twitter and on platforms like Instagram, which, very, which is very, you know, uh, friendly to uh, visual materials. There are a couple of accounts there doing similar things. So yeah, because this person, he lives in Italy and he used to operate more on Weibo, which is this Chinese Twitter-like platform. And when he was on Weibo, he was already doing things like receive submissions from his uh, kind of followers about just like things they want to share with the public anonymously. So he would receive submissions and then share on his Weibo. And, you know, I think uh, it, it was this year, his Weibo, he started to kind of like share some of the critics, uh, criticism he has on some of the social issues. And then his Twitter account just got banned. And then he re- registered and got banned again. And just like this, banned like 50 second, 52 times in total. And then finally, he was like, I'm done. And then he kind of moved to uh, Twitter and started to operate. Uh, and then, you know, protest happened and then uh, he has followers uh, that followed him to t- Twitter from Weibo and then started to, you know, again, submit content to him and he started to share and then more people noticed that and then kind of like also start to do that. So essentially, he's become a kind of a relay between the Chinese Internet and, and Western social media and Western media, for that matter. I want to talk a little bit about the efficacy of all this effort. There's been essentially some result that appears to be a kind of validation of the protesters' efforts. Yeah, you don't really, it's hard to ever kind of truly uh, establish cause and effect uh, within the Chinese government. But, you know, we've seen a major relaxation of uh, the zero COVID policies in the past week. And um, just a lot of the very basic things that were were core parts of people's day-to-day lives for the past several years, be it, you know, needing to show uh, a test result to to do almost anything um, to, you know, government authorities' ability to kind of lock down an entire neighborhood on a whim. Uh, those have all been kind of thrown out the door. And so uh, it does feel like the pressure's off for now. Um, you know, the protests themselves also were hit pretty massively by the sort of full brunt of the Chinese surveillance system. And so a lot of people who were out, uh, you know, either exposed their face at some point or brought their phones. And the Chinese have great facial recognition and phone tracking that they then used oftentimes to walk, you know, basically within two or three days, contact most of the people who were on the streets those nights, uh, drag them in, intimidate them, uh, you know, make them promise not to go again, that kind of thing. Uh, and so that too, I think, uh, has has helped take the pressure off. Um, a lot of people were first time, you know, political actors, um, because in China, it is so rare. So, you know, they were quite intimidated and scared by actually realizing the security state was able to identify them so swiftly. So yeah, for now, things things are changing, it seems like, and it all of a sudden, China looks very different because we're facing a winter in which we're probably going to see a lot of spread of COVID uh, and a relaxation of these rules. Um, and, and, and I think we're still kind of trying to wrap our heads around what that means, uh, as opposed to a China locked up, uh, you know, in this kind of perpetual limbo of shutdown and, and kind of slowly spreading COVID. You have this uh, quote in here from uh, Han Rungman, professor of media and politics at the University of Georgia who talks a little bit about the kind of goals of Chinese censorship and the idea that perhaps some of the sloshing over the side that you described, Paul, is sort of permitted in a way. 
it seems clear here that the volume has overwhelmed the the apparatus on the whole, but there's a kind of acceptance that there needs to be some degree of authenticity in the public discourse, even as the control is sort of maintained. Well, I think the thing is, when we talk about the water sloshing over the side, it doesn't mean that the system's not functioning. What's happened over the past several weeks is probably one of the greatest deletions of internet content the world has ever known. And every time we see one of these events, you see one of the, you know, probably one of the largest purgings in the world of information and data, period, because each time the censor the censorship apparatus swings into action and deletes all this stuff. And, you know, even as we were seeing these videos, you know, they may come down within an hour. You could like, you know, on my WeChat feed at one point, you know, you could see all the videos, but you couldn't click through and they wouldn't play. So it's still functioning and a lot of stuff is still getting deleted. It's just some is getting through, uh, which is the abnormal part. And so I think his point there is, you know, not that you have to allow for some of this, but that even when you get overwhelmed, you've done such a thorough job of deleting that for people in more distant cities or people who don't really know anybody who's particularly politically active or has a connection to a VPN, uh, say an older person or somebody who's, you know, just in the countryside, they may have heard nothing of this anyway. And a lot of people, a huge chunk of China's population probably isn't particularly aware of this, even as the, you know, the sort of upper middle class and middle class, um, you know, are connecting to Twitter and spreading these videos and using it as a repository to bring them back in. Even as that's happening, China is a very large country with a very diverse population socioeconomically. And there's a whole spread of people who are just not getting as much information on this. And in that respect, uh, the censorship is highly effective, um, you know, and, and, and will continue to be in the future, even if it's overwhelmed in similar ways going forward. You've mentioned Twitter a few times. It's clear that Twitter plays a kind of specific role in serving as a channel out. Are there any other American social media platforms that you see or technology firms that you see as important uh, in any of this? I'm not sure if there are anything that is as important. I mean, Instagram is something I wouldn't say as important, but like I said, there are, there are a couple of accounts uh, on Instagram that is quite interesting. They kind of function similar, uh, similarly as teacherly. They receive submissions a lot of times, actually, just in chat format, just people sharing their thoughts uh, in like DM, and they would and allow, of course, give them permission to screenshot without any identifying information, and then reshare on their story. And it actually got quite popular. This kind of accounts, uh, and you know, kind of got a lot of followers. And recently, you know, when this, I don't know if you've heard, like when this sole protester hung the banner in Beijing to kind of protest the COVID policy and Xi Jinping, there was a wave of people, a lot of times actually uh, overseas Chinese students uh, on foreign campuses started to put uh, banners on their campuses to support him. In that protest, uh, those kind of accounts actually played a huge role. They, one of the accounts actually designed the posters, uh, like some of the posters that forced students to, to go and put it up. And of course, they would share photos of students when they put up the banner to, you know, then make other people realize, oh, there are people out there who have the same uh, similar thoughts as me and who are doing this. So, you know, it would give, give courage to some more people who were maybe hesitating to do this, but eventually see imagery of other people doing it and then decided to do it. So, you know, like there are a couple of accounts that, that are getting quite influential on Instagram as well. It's just one of my last questions, and this is a slightly tricky one. Uh, so feel free to you know, critique the question as much as uh, provide an answer. Um, but one of the things that 
reading these types of stories makes me do on some level is reflect on our own Western social media uh, ecosystem. And, you know, if you think about it, there's a lot of criticism from a lot of different parties about the prevalence of certain types of speech, uh, whether it's hate speech or COVID misinformation or other problematic speech on social platforms here. One of the things that, you know, when I read about what's going on uh, on these Chinese platforms in a circumstance like this, you see that you've got this incredible censorship apparatus that's human, of course, machine working together, and yet it's not quite able to contain um, the prevalence of certain types of media. What does it say, do you think, about demands in, in the West for social media platforms to be able to quell or suppress certain types of speech on Western platforms? Does it so, sort of show that it's just is sort of not possible, even with a, a much larger uh, human investment? I mean, I think not until the government gets involved. And, you know, just as somebody who has spent most of my uh, working life, you know, the past 15 years covering this stuff in China and occasionally going back to the United States to visit, you know, though I'm from the U.S., it always feels quite quaint to hear some of the sort of, you know, calls about censorship and and and, and the back and forth simply because, you know, you don't have a government spending billions and billions of dollars trying to, you know, control every aspect of speech. You don't have an entire bureaucracy spread across the country on a county by county level dedicated to finding people who complain online and shutting them up and, you know, finding memes that might be going viral that are critical of the government and shutting those up. When Trump was blocked uh, from Twitter, for instance, I, I thought it was interesting because, you know, a lot of people in China were just amazed that a political figure could be taken down by a company. And, you know, with all the kind of back and forths recently around Twitter and, and Elon, it, it, there's a lot of noise there and there's a lot of chaos, but also a lot, you know, to me, a lot of it feels like what should be happening in a democracy, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a little loud and a little raucous for some people, but as long as those fights are happening and that debate is happening and you have people buying platforms to save them and then starting new ones to undermine them. I mean, that's, that's a world in which speech is actually proliferating and free. We can worry about echo bubbles, you know, echo chambers, and we can worry about, you know, disinformation and, 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 and hate speech and all these things. And there's, you know, people will come up with different balances. Uh, but the fact that the, everybody's, you know, a million voices are kind of contesting in those respects just feels very healthy to me by comparison. And that may be too like lovey-dovey an answer, but, you know, coming from a, a real deeply technologically totalitarian state, uh, it just, the United States feels so, so, so far away from that, um, that it just, yeah. So I think that's my, that's my main kind of takeaway from it. Um, Mui, I'm curious what you think though. I feel I feel similar. Yeah, yeah, I feel similar. You know, like I felt the kind of issue that is in the U.S. or like on the Internet that is uh, not heavily censored are, are very, very different from uh, what we have in China. Uh, and as long as people are generally free to share, you know, their their thoughts and ideas, we, we will face other issues. But yeah, but they, they're not the same kind at all. And and I think uh, as long as the thoughts can be shared, they will get, get in conflict and people will argue and people will, will get in, people will get close with people uh, who are like-minded a lot of the times. So I think they are, those things are quite natural. Yeah, so like Paul said, I think compared to what's happening in China, it's, it's healthy. Well, it's difficult to tell what will happen next. Uh, it certainly seems as if the demonstrations have tapered down. A question about the extent to which the Chinese censorship and surveillance apparatus has been successful, uh, or perhaps the seed has been planted by these events and what policy change they seem to have wrought. So 
I suppose the two of you will continue to cover that. And I thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us here. Yeah, thanks, Justin. It's been great. That's it for this episode. Hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.